As some of you know, I have two dogs. One was homeschooled and the other, well, she graduated obedience school at the bottom of her class. But she graduated. But they've learned to do something I think that's pretty good. We have a cat who stays indoors, but we let her outdoors for a few uh, hours each day. And then when it's time to bring the cat back inside, we, got, we open the door and we, we ask the dogs where the cat is. We say, where's Chloe? Go find her. And they go out in the backyard and they rustle her up and bring her back in. I think that's pretty good. Now, if you've got a pet at your house that can do something that good or better, just take a moment and turn to your neighbor and say, that's nothing. <laughs> All right, now wait a minute. If you don't want to be here till 9.30 tonight, you take it back. Well, I was pretty proud until my wife explained to me that she understood that any dog has the vocabulary of 30 to 40 words that they understand and that they ought to be able to know every person's name in the house. I was a little disappointed, but then I felt a little better when I realized my dogs have some other talents. Not only can they sometimes understand what I say, but without speaking English, they're able to get me to understand what they're saying. Take this morning, about 5.30 to be exact, my dog, who sleeps in our bedroom, wanted to go outside. And so she made that very clear to me. She scratched on the door. When I didn't respond, she came and put her paw on my face. I got the message. The other dog, uh, if she wants attention and we're not giving it to her, she'll start walking around and she'll start scratching on different things in, in the house. And if we still don't give her attention, then she'll go over to the magazine stack which is near my chair, which contains all of my Sports Illustrateds and my ACC basketball handbook, and she'll start taking them out of the basket. Then she has my undivided attention. Well, imagine if dogs can do this, can't humans communicate without speaking as well? And they do. Even when they're babies, babies are able to tell us by a cry or a laugh or a look or a grimace or a smile what their situation is. And adult humans, of course, can, can do the same thing without saying a word. They can let us know how things stand. When the bow is taken off and the present is open, before they say anything, you get a look and you know what they thought about the present. I don't know if you've seen the uh, advertisement for these very large NFL posters that you can stick on your wall. Well, apparently a man wants that for Christmas, but instead his wife gets him a grill. And he opens it up, and he's, dis and, and he's disappointed, and she can say, you don't like it, do you? And he says, oh, no, I like it. You don't like it, do you? He says, oh, I like it. And then she comes back in the room, and he's hung the grill on the wall. And she says, I knew you didn't like it. We have that ability to communicate without saying words. Well, if animals can do that, and if babies can do that, and if adults can do that, is it any surprise that God could do that? I want to tell you this evening that before Jesus ever spoke in the temple when he was 12 years old, before Jesus ever preached the Sermon on the Mount or told any parables, God spoke volumes through him when Jesus was a baby. Jesus came to Bethlehem, came to earth from heaven and said two things without saying a word, very loud and clear. These are the two things I hear God saying very clearly through Jesus. The first one... It's just this. I love you. I love you. I love each and every one of you. Because what says love more clearly than our presence? What says love more clearly than people who are willing to spend 24 to 36 hours in a snowed-in airport just to get back to the people 
they love. What says love more clearly than driving all night without stopping to make it in time to be with your family on a special occasion? Presence, as clear as anything, says, I care about you. I love you. And think of the distance that Jesus traveled from heaven to earth. How shall we think of this? Well, the late Professor Lewis Smead, who has a wonderful book on forgiveness, it's another topic I recommend called The Art of Forgiveness. Lewis Smead studied in Oxford. And uh, if, if you're familiar with the old PBS series, Upstairs, Downstairs, you know how some society works in, uh, in England, and that is uh, the educated, the elite, are on the upstairs. And the downstairs are where the servants are. And there's very little... There's very little fraternization between the upstairs and the downstairs. They may talk, but they do not socialize together. Well, Lewis Smedes and his wife Doris moved uh, to England so he could go to Oxford. He rented the upstairs of a woman's house. And try as he might to engage her in conversation, to run errands for her, to try to do her favors and open the door and do everything, she would do very little fraternization with him because he was at Oxford. And she was merely the one renting out the upstairs, and she lived downstairs, and the two do not meet. Smeed says, I thought about the situation, and I thought about Jesus Christ. And he said this, he said, I realize that Jesus lives on the millionth floor, and I live in the basement. And he came to be with me all the way downstairs. Nothing says I love you like your presence. And then the other thing I think Jesus is saying very clearly without speaking any words in Bethlehem is this. You are valuable to me. You are worth a lot to me. You are worth the trip. You are valued. And I thought about that. Ian Pitts Watson, who's a theologian, says there are two kinds of love in the world. One is the kind of love that seeks value. So you look for what's attractive, or you look for what's winsome, or you look for uh, what uh, stands out, and you love it because it is, it, it, it is valuable. There's another kind of love, he says, that creates value. And which is the way, I would wonder, that God works? Is God's a love that's looking for something valuable, or is God's a love that, cre- that makes the object valuable? I thought about this. You probably remember the story of a very well-heeled, educated, wealthy man, native of India. Traveled all around the world numerous times over, extremely successful. And as he got on in age, a young, uh, younger friend said to him, said, you know, uh, I, I never understood why you didn't marry. I mean, you, you have so many talents and gifts. I, I don't understand that. And he said, well, that, that's interesting. It seems, he said, I've always been looking for the perfect woman. And I remember there was one in Madrid, and, and she had beautiful eyes, but he said we really had very little in common. And he said there was another woman in Paris who was very attractive and uh, inside and out, and, and we enjoyed each other's company, but, but on a few things we would disagree, and, and I didn't think that made me comfortable. And he said then there was another woman in Istanbul, and we had a lot in common. And she was lovely. And she was generally caring. But I felt like she didn't really like my family as much as I would want her to like my family. He said, and then there was this woman in London. She was beautiful inside and out. We shared so much in common. And she loved my parents and and knew my brothers and sisters and welcomed them. And it was a wonderful experience to be with her. And so the younger man said, well, then 
why didn't you get married? And he said, well, that's an interesting thing. You see, it seems she was looking for the perfect man. God's not like that. God is not looking for people without flaw to, be, to value us. It is God's valuing us as we are that makes us valuable. The fair market value of any human being is the life and death of Jesus Christ. That's our value. That, and the issue, I think, for us in our life is whether we're going to buy into that. Whether we really believe that we, as we are, are worth the trip that Jesus made on our behalf. And I think sometimes we suspect that we're really not worth the trip. Because we have a much better idea of how messed up our life is. And certainly God couldn't really know the kind of things that sometimes we think or the things sometimes we say or worse, even the things that we do. And if God knew how messed up we really were, God wouldn't value us. But the fact of the matter is this. First of all, everyone's messed up. Everyone's, I heard this statistic the other day. I thought I'd pass it on. That 100% of clergy families are dysfunctional. That didn't surprise me. But I was relieved to find out that 98% of all families are dysfunctional. That's just who we are. We're messed up. I love the story about a man that died went to heaven. And St. Peter gave him a 100-pound piece of chalk and said the first thing you have to do in heaven is climb a ladder. And at every rung of the ladder, mark a line for every sin you committed on earth. And then when you're finished, you come back down. Well, he had been at it for months, and his 100-pound chalk was down to a sliver. And he was getting tired and frustrated when, ah, somebody stepped on his hand. He looked to see who it was. It was Mother Teresa. He said, Mother Teresa, what are you doing? And she said, I'm going down for more chalk. All of us, there's none of us without flaw and, and without error. And the fact of the matter further is that Bethlehem was pretty messed up. Occupied by enemy soldiers, small town, a dirty area kept for animals with everything that attends to animals in it. And that's where Jesus ended up. Our mess does not disqualify us. Jesus from making the trip for us. In fact, it rather does qualify us. Jesus only comes to messed up people. Jesus only comes to people in need of a Savior. Jesus only comes to those who are not perfect. And His presence tells them that they are loved and they are valued. And the issue is whether those people, you and, and me, those people accept it. And i got to tell you about my cat. Um, now, nobody in the house thinks my cat's very bright. But I think she is. This is one thing she does. Every night at 8.45, I give my cat kind of an evening snack. Every night about 8.45. About 8.42, wherever the cat is, she gets up and she makes her way to her dish. I think that's pretty good. But, you know, but the rest of my family doesn't think she's very bright. But she's bright enough to know an offer when it's available. And she's bright enough to know when the time is to accept that offer. Are we that bright? Because the price of not accepting our own value is way, way too high. If there's one quote that's meant the most to me in the past 12 months, it's this quote, and I wanted to pass it on. Some of you have heard it. It's from a woman who for many years in the 1930s and 40s, was a leading researcher and writer in, in the field of uh, psychopathology. 
and studied all sorts of people with all sorts of problems. And this was her conclusion about those of us who really don't feel we're very valued. And so we end up trying to make ourselves valuable. This is what she said. Anyone who believes that he or she must energetically seek their place in life will never find it. He who does not know that by his mere presence he already does belong and has a place. If one has to be more than he is in order to be somebody, he will never be anybody. She goes on to say, everyone tries to be more, to be better, to reach higher, and as a consequence, we're all neurotic. In a neurotic society which pays a premium to the overambitious search for prestige and striving for superiority, underneath, we are all frightened people, not sure of ourselves, of our worth, or of our place. It is this doubt of oneself expressed in a feeling of inadequacy and inferiority which is at the root of all maladjustment and psychological pathology. And the costs to our spiritual life are even higher. To not know, to not believe that we were worth the trip, that we are loved, and that we are valued, has repercussions in everything we say and do. Because if we don't believe we're valued, then we'll try to make ourselves valuable. And we will hurt ourselves and others in the process. You were worth the trip. I'm reminded of one Christmas when a three-year-old was playing in the Christmas presents and she picked out a bow from one of the presents. She stuck it on her forehead and she said, Look, Mom and Dad, I'm a present. And she was right. And she was right. Jesus Christ is the gift to you so that you might own yourself, your value, and the fact that you're loved enough to realize that you in turn are a gift to the world.